grace, isn't it? And we have been looking together at the book of Jonah. It's not a long book. Uh, in fact, it's one of the shortest books, not just in the Old Testament, but in the entire Bible. And uh, I think in spite of it being short, it's got a very important message about God's grace and just how far God's grace extends. You know, it sends prophets and pagans and prisoners alike. Uh, God always extends His grace. Um, and what I mean by grace, in case you you, know, you hear that term used a lot, or you know, it becomes kind of a theological word that everybody uses, and maybe you don't really know what it means, but it means that, oh, that, that whereas the Bible says over and over again that human beings, when we sin, deserve God's wrath and punishment, that instead of that, that we get God's love and His protection and His welcome into a relationship with Him. That's grace, that we get what we don't deserve. And, of course, the other side of the coin is mercy, which is that we don't get what we do deserve. And so I just use both of those terms pretty well interchangeably, grace and mercy. It's just two sides of the same coin that we receive from God that which we have not earned and can't earn. And we don't receive what we have earned, which is his wrath and judgment and punishment. Um, I want to look at Jonah, who has been the recipient of God's grace uh, up to this point in the story. He has been, received his commission from God to go and preach to Nineveh. He has disobeyed that commission and... God, rather than judging him, uh, decides he's going to teach Jonah a lesson about grace. And he causes a storm to come up, and the only person who uh, is uh, uh, in any way had their life altered by the storm is Jonah, who gets cast out of the boat into it. And then instead of drowning in the ocean, he's swallowed by a fish. And God preserves his life for three days in the fish. Jonah cries out to God for mercy, and God grants it to him as him spit up on the beach, uh, which maybe doesn't seem like a great, a great outcome, but it beats the alternative, right? And God has been very gracious, and we're going to see God continue to be gracious, not just to Jonah, but also to the people of Nineveh here this morning. So if you've got your Bible, go to uh, Jonah chapter 3. We'll pick up there. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. 
Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now the text starts off by saying, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, maybe I don't need to say it, but I will. That is God's grace. Came a second time. Uh, most of you who, who have children have, have them that are now old enough to have rebelled against you at some point, and you have given them instruction, and maybe if you're, if you're a kid at my house, you occasionally hear this, don't make me tell you twice. Right? Or maybe you're a little more gracious and you say it this way. How many times do I have to tell you this? Once. That's how many times I should have to tell you. God is gracious. He has, and and let's remember that God, God does not come to Jonah a second time because he thinks, well, Jonah's probably forgotten what I told him to start with. No, I don't think that's the case. In fact, if you had just spent uh, three days inside of a big fish, I doubt that you would have thought about a whole lot else other than what God had told you that you disobeyed that got you into this mess. Amen? So it's not that, it's not that God has, is, is thinking, well, maybe Jonah's just unclear. Maybe he just didn't remember what I had told him. No, he remembers perfectly well, I'm sure. But in coming to Jonah again, God is being incredibly gracious because God comes to Jonah with an identical message to deliver, to remind Jonah not just that God still wants obedience to the original instruction that he gave, but that he still wants Jonah as the prophet to deliver it. Because it would have been really easy for God to say, all right, well, you disobeyed, you screwed up, I did save your life, however, I'm done with you as my prophet. God doesn't do that. God goes back to Jonah a second time. And he says, carry the message that I gave you. And so Jonah does. God gives him Identical instructions in an identical way carry an identical message to the identical people that he had the first time with the same prophet. And I think that's incredibly gracious of God. I don't know how many of you have ever been a boss that had an employee that you gave instruction to that was very clear, and then they turned around and did the exact opposite that you then said, you know... I love you, I want to keep you as my employee, I'm going to give you the exact same instructions again. No. Very often what we say is, look, I told you very clearly. Were you unclear? No, it was not unclear. All right. You're fired. Get out of here. God isn't like that. God says, all right, you didn't obey. I'm going to give you the exact message, the same instructions carry out because I want you to be my prophet 
and after this, you know, you, you get a very much a, a parallel structure between chapter 1 and chapter 2. They look exactly the same, except for that that's the fact that it's the second time. But verse 3 uh, of chapter 3 is a whole lot different than verse 3 of chapter 1. And what you get here is that Jonah obeyed and went to Nineveh. And Jonah is going to go into one of the biggest cities of his day. And according to the scriptures, it took three days just to see it all. It's a huge city. In chapter 4, you're going to find out that there's about 120,000 people who live there, which may not seem very big by our standards, but this is a massive, massive city for Jonah's day. It wasn't until the Roman Empire was founded that there was the first city of a million people. So 120,000 is pretty good. And it's a massive place. And the only mode of transportation is horses or on foot. And so to get around, you've got to walk everywhere pretty much. It takes three days to walk around and see the entire city. And Jonah goes out preaching on the first day that he hits town. Presumably, he's going to be there three days so he can go to every part of the city and carry his message. And people respond on the very first day. As soon as he starts opening his mouth, he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And word spreads throughout the entire town. Everyone, the Bible says, from they all believed God, and they all declared a fast, and they all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This, this is the greatest repentance, mass repentance and turning toward God that there has ever been. Now, I happen to think Billy Graham has had a history of being a pretty good evangelist, but nowhere that Billy ever did a crusade did the entire city repent and come back to God. And Jonah is the prophet that God uses to do this. Did God know what was going to happen? Yes. Could God have picked a more obedient prophet, perhaps, to carry his message? Yes. So why Jonah? Because God is gracious. He knew exactly what would happen. He knew exactly what the, how, what the people's response would be. He knew that it would take two opportunities for Jonah to obey, and yet he still called Jonah to go to him. And he could have sent Jonah, let's remember this too, he could have sent Jonah as simply a herald of what was going to happen, like he did with Jeremiah. You know, he, he gave Jeremiah this commission, and this is why Je Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, because for 40 years, until the nation went into exile, Jeremiah preached the same message to his people over and over and over and over. Jeremiah preached, and he told the people, Judgment is coming. God's wrath is going to fall. We're going to go into exile. We're going to be taken captive. We're going to go into exile. Repent 
turn around, come back to God, turn around, go the other way, stop sinning, stop doing what you're doing, you're going to be judged and destroyed. And you know what happened? They got judged and destroyed because nobody listened. And Jonah could have been sent on that kind of a mission. By the way, if you're picking as a pastor or as somebody else who God calls to speak on his behalf, you pray that you're Jonah and not Jeremiah. If you want God, if you're picking which career path to send me down, I would really a lot sooner rather be Jonah whose preaching is responded to and whose who is used by your power to change people's lives than to be Jeremiah spitting against the wind for 40 years. If I get a choice, this is what I want. And God, because he is gracious, called Jonah, the most rebellious of the prophets, to go to preach the greatest message of repentance that ever got preached and have the greatest response that ever happened. This entire city comes to back to God and turns from their sin. Why? Because God is gracious, not just to Jonah, but to these people. And by the way, I just want to point this out too. Why is it 40 days? Why does God say when he tells Jonah, go tell him 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed? Why 40 days? Why doesn't God, maybe you can ask it this way. It's a different way of asking a question. Why does God send a prophet at all? Why didn't God just, you know, like Sodom and Gomorrah, Fire and brimstone out of the sky, boom, you know, and just none of us gone. Because he's gracious. He sends them a warning, 40 days, and this is going to happen. He doesn't just destroy them without warning. He doesn't, he doesn't just let them persist in their evil. He sends them a prophet. One of the very few times that God ever sent a prophet to non-Jewish people is here. And he sends them with a message of warning. You've got 40 days to figure this out, guys. You don't repent in the next 40 days, then you'll be destroyed. Why does God do that? Because he is unbelievably patient and gracious. He's going to give them one more chance, one last opportunity to repent. You've got 40 days. You don't have 41, you got 40, but you do have 40 days, and the entire city repents. And God's grace even extends not just to Jonah, not just to the people of Nineveh, but all the way up the chain to the king of Nineveh himself. And the word of prophecy from God has spread like wildfire all over the city, and so the king decides to follow the example of politicians everywhere. When you see a parade going a certain direction, get out in front and lead it. (laughs) And so he does. He gets out in front of this, and everybody's having a fast and putting on sackcloth, and he says, well, 
by golly, I'll issue a decree saying that everybody should do that. And so he himself does that to show his own repentance from his evil and issues a decree that everybody should do that, and even the animals should do that, and that not even the animals should eat or drink, and even the animals should have burlap that they're wearing to show that they are repentant before God. No human being or, even, or, or any animal should eat or drink, and everything in the city should fast, and every person is supposed to call on God and renounce their evil behavior and their violence. Now, a couple of weeks ago when I started on this, I noted from the, some of the Assyrians' own history that they were renowned for being a violent, vicious, nasty group of people. And somehow in their own heart, they have realized that that's what they are. And so even their king says, everybody's to renounce their evil and their violence and to turn away from it. And faced with a choice between repentance and death, the people of Nineveh make the wise choice and choose repentance. But of course, a whole lot of people don't make that same choice, do they? Because people today still have the same choice. Repent, turn to Jesus, be saved, or face destruction. People of Nineveh make a wiser choice. In fact, even Jesus says that. He says, the people of Nineveh will rise up against this generation in condemnation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and one greater than Jonah is here preaching. Jesus offers everybody the same choice, repentance or destruction and judgment. What are you going to choose? People of Nineveh choose repentance. And, you know, these people don't know enough. They don't know Jonah's God. They worship Asher, the war god, that they bow down to and have named their nation after. But they repent enough to say, well, I hope that maybe if we all repent, we all put on sackcloth, we all put ashes on our heads, that... And even our animals do that. And nobody eats or drinks anything to show how serious we are about this. That maybe, perhaps, as the king's decree reads, perhaps God will relent from the destruction he's threatened. They don't know anything about this God that Jonah has preached, but they know enough to know that he is forever more serious about their sin. They say perhaps he will relent from destruction, and their hope turns out to be well-founded. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. There was always potential for salvation that was implied in Jonah's message. That's why he said 40 days, as I said. God gave him 40 days to repent. And they do. And so God says, look, thank you for heeding your last warning. This was the last warning you were going to get, like a parent. You know, I mean, I don't know if you guys do that at your house, but we do it at mine. This is the last warning you're going to get. 
you need to obey now. If you do not obey, destruction and death will follow. <laughs> okay, we don't actually say that, and we don't do that, okay? Although there have been times when I have thought, like Bill Cosby, boy, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. Make another one just like you. <laughs> okay. Um, but this is your last warning. Son, you better do what I'm telling you. This is your last warning before the wrath of your father falls. Okay. And God says the same thing. This is your last warning, 40 days. But if you heed and repent, you'll escape judgment. And they do. They heed, they escape judgment. From, the, from the, the poorest peasant up to the king in his palace, they all repent. And, and even the animals are made to repent. <laughs> you're going to repent. If you're a cow, you're going to repent in Nineveh because we're serious about this. We don't want to leave any doubt in God's mind that we're turning around from our evil. And because God's goal is not destruction, but salvation, it's salvation that comes to the Ninevites. Um, you know, whenever I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, and I, I try to do this quite a bit, as, as often as I meet somebody who is not a believer in Christ, I try to, at some point in the relationship, bring the, into the relationship a conversation where I can share the gospel with them. And I can always tell when they start to get it. Because when they start to get it, this is what they'll say. And invariably, this is the question that gets asked. Now, wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that somebody who is a murderer can place their trust in Jesus dying on the cross for their sins and being raised from the dead, and God will not hold their murder against them? Now, I don't know why it's always murderer, you know. It's never adulterer. It's, ne it's never greedy. It's never worshiper of a false god. It's not, never any of the other things that are included on that list, right? It's always murderer. It's like people have got in their mind two categories of sin, murder and everything I'm prone to, <laughs> right? <laughs> and as I'm going to put myself on the right side of the ledger here. And then they're always shocked. And somehow as Christians, we always fail to be shocked. After a certain point in our Christian life, we fail to be shocked at the grace of God. And when I tell them, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because that's exactly what the Scripture says. That God is that gracious. Can you be a murderer, believe in Jesus, have your life changed, your heart regenerated, come into the kingdom and family of God clean? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Why am I saying that? That's exactly what the Bible says. Can you be a serial adulterer? Can you be Bernie Madoff? Can you be, you know, can you be a swindler on an epic scale? $50 billion worth of a swindler. 
Can you be a warmonger? Can you be greedy? Can you be an idolater? Can you be immoral in every possible and conceivable way that, it, that there is? And place your trust in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross for your sin and his resurrection from the dead to grant you new life and receive that new life and not have any of that stuff count against you? Yes. The Ninevites are as wicked a people as there has ever been. In fact, about two generations after this, the Ninevites themselves are going to be destroyed because the repentance of this group of people is short-lived. These people repent. A couple generations later, they're back to wickedness. And God allows them to be destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. Although, interestingly enough, you may not know this, one of the groups of Christians that is present in Iraq today are the Assyrians, the descendants of these people, Nineveh. Nasty people can come to repent and enter relationship with God through repentance of their sin and faith in God and be forgiven of their sin. And you know what the great thing is? All of us are nasty people. All of us. Because I've said before, and I'll say this till the day that I die, there are not bad people and good people. There are bad people, and then there is Jesus. And that's it. And all of us are on the wrong side of the ledger when it comes to standing before a holy God. And so whether we are a prophet of God whether we are an idol-worshiping, blood-loving, murdering, nasty person like, the, like an Assyrian, whether we are a money-grubbing person like Bernie Madoff, put whatever kind of wickedness that other people do and then yours in the same bucket, and God's grace extends to all of those people if they will repent of their sin and place their trust in the God who loves them. Um, let me just ask this question, and I know most of you for sure, maybe all of you even, what your answer is, but what have you done with the grace of God? What have you done with the grace of, of God? Every person who does not repent of his or her sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and in his resurrection from the dead to grant them new life, by his resurrection power comes our new life also. Every person who has never done that, Jew, Gentile, Buddhist, Hindu, Atheist, Muslim, what have you, Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, whatever, okay? If you have never personally placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you have rejected the grace of God and you are under his condemnation and judgment.
And it might not be 40 days, it might be 40 years, but it is coming just as surely for you as it is for the Ninevites. God has made the one way of escape. Because he is unbelievably gracious. Gracious to prophets and pagans. Gracious to idolaters and murderers. Gracious to you and to me. God loves us all. Uh, If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, let me ask you this question. What have you done with the grace of God? Have you used it, as some, some of us are prone to do, as an excuse and a reason to continue in your sin? Because after all, I'm not under God's judgment anymore, and I know I shouldn't think this way or speak this way or act this way. But after all, God loves me, and I'm his child, and he will forgive me. And that's true, but what you're about to do is still wrong. And you still experience God's discipline for it. Or have you developed such an appreciation for a God who loves you enough to send his son? to die in your place, to pay for your sin, and to bring you into his family that you can't imagine living your life the way you used to do before you knew him. What have you done with the grace of God? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father,